Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to talk about the fragile state of our election system. Our guest is one of the nation's foremost experts on elections, Rick Hassan. Rick's a professor at the University of California, Irvine, and author of a new book called Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. We talk about all kinds of nightmare scenarios, stuff that keeps Rick up at night and should keep you up too. Like, what if President Trump loses and refuses to concede? What if the Russians try to interfere with the election by taking down the electrical grid in cities with large numbers of African-American voters like Milwaukee or Philadelphia? Or what if the states are so overwhelmed by the number of mail-in ballots they receive because of concerns about voting in person because of the coronavirus? What happens then? One of the things we hold sacred in this country, our free and fair elections have never been more vulnerable. Rick explains what we should do to protect them. Here's our conversation. Uh, Professor Rick Hassan, welcome to It's All Political. It's great to be with you. You, as one of the foremost election experts in the country, were you were concerned about the uh, country's ability to hold fair elections before this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Why is that? And why is your concern heightened now? Right. So I wrote a book called Election Meltdown, which came out in February. It actually came out the day after the debacle in Iowa, which seems like it was 10 years ago, but it was only a few months ago. Oh my ago. God, yes. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, uh, the book is talking about the four reasons why uh, confidence in the uh, fairness and legitimacy of American elections is going down. Uh, and so those four reasons are that these fights over voter suppression and voter fraud with um, almost exclusively Republican legislatures passing laws that make it harder for people to register and vote in the name of preventing voter fraud without any proof that voter fraud is a major problem in the United States, convincing both sides uh, that the other side's trying to cheat, uh, pockets of election administrator incompetence, places where um, they just don't run elections very well, and in a very close election, the attention focuses immediately in those places. Uh, the third reason is um, both newfangled and old-fashioned dirty tricks. Uh, think of the Russians in 2016. Think of the uh, uh, absentee ballot tampering that occurred in the North Carolina 9th Congressional District in 2018, things like that. Uh, and and the last reason I think that um, things are were getting worse and, and are now potentially poised to get even uh, to an even more dire state uh, is uh, an increasingly incendiary rhetoric about rigged or stolen elections. President Trump famously you know, claimed without any evidence that there were Three to five million fraudulent voters in the 2016 election, all he claimed voting for his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Uh, but Trump's not the only one who makes claims of rigged or stolen elections. And I think about a number of Democrats who claimed that the 2018 gubernatorial race in Georgia between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, that Kemp stole that election. And, and even though I think Kemp engaged in some uh, terrible uh, misconduct to try to help his own election, I don't think uh, there's good proof to call it uh, a stolen election. And I think that that kind of language really undermines even further people's uh, confidence in the process. Well, let's, we're going to break down a, a, each of those four things that are, that you outline in the book, which is excellent. I commend it to everyone. Um, what, so what amount of confidence do you have that the election day 2020 is going to go off <clears throat> at least as smoothly as it did in, in past years? So why, why do I think it's not going to go off as smoothly? Yeah. Well, or, or do you think it will? Well, so I think that the uh, the pandemic has 
changed how we're running uh, our elections in in two ways. Number one, um, we're going to see uh, a huge increase in the number of uh, absentee ballots and non-traditional ways of voting. In places like California, that's not going to be as big of a deal because we already have so many people that vote by mail and we have an infrastructure for dealing with that. But in, in other places, it's going to be pretty radical change. Right? So one thing is we've got uh, changes in uh, procedures. Uh, that means that the, um, the places like Pennsylvania and Michigan that didn't have no excuse absentee balloting before that have it now are going to be faced with a flood of ballots. There might be delays in getting uh, election results reported. There might be shifts in who's the winner that leaves room for people to claim that they're the winner even when they're not. Uh, so one thing that's changing are the procedures. The other thing that's changing are the laws. And the, the laws are changing in part because uh, some states are, are, are changing the dates of of, um, uh, of elections or changing the uh, requirements for elections. And there's also been some lawsuits in places where they haven't made changes. For example, there's a lot of lawsuits over what counts as an excuse in a state that requires proof of an excuse in order to vote. Um, by mail. Uh, so these things further increase the, uh, I think the, the, the risk that there uh, is going to be an election where a good percentage of people don't believe that the election was conducted fairly. And that's really a problem because you know, our democracy, we don't, we don't usually articulate it, but our democracy depends upon the losers accepting the results of the election as legitimate, grumbling about the loss, but agreeing that the way the election was done was fair and willing to fight another day. If, if we lose that, we, you know, we lose the very basis for our democracy. Oh, <clears throat> let's, let's jump onto that because I want to, I definitely want to talk about mail-in balloting and, and mail-in ballots in a minute. Cause that's so important right now, but and that two different, very different people, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Trump's uh, former attorney fixer, Michael Cohen, who it seems like talk about something that happened years ago. Uh, he seemed to have faded from, uh, as he's, as he's doing his prison time, um, has, has said that they, as you alluded to, they wonder whether Trump would concede the election if he loses. Cohen said, given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful tr uh, transition of power. W what do you think of that? Do you, do you think that that's, that's a, um, that's a possibility and, and what are our options if he doesn't? Well, I would say that uh, it's the number one question I get. And, and when I was still able to go out on the road and do my book tour, it was the number one question. What if Trump doesn't concede? And I think that uh, it's not a question of not conceding. It's a question of Trump claiming that he's won the election uh, and uh, you know, claiming that uh, you know, any places where he lost, it's, it's the result of fraud. I certainly think it's possible, given his track record, that he would do something like that. Um, uh, to the extent that he could manipulate state legislatures to uh, send in competing slates of electoral college votes, to the extent he could try to um, influence what Congress would do in the case of a very close election. I do think that it is something to worry about. Uh, the best um, inoculation against this would be a blowout election, you know, either where he wins decisively or loses decisively. I think where we're really in trouble is when uh, there's a, a close enough election that he could make a claim uh, that uh, his um, supporters would believe that he's actually won the election. Uh, so think, again, back to the uh, example of Pennsylvania. Imagine that Trump is ahead in Pennsylvania on election night, uh, declares victory, 
uh, five days later, they're finished counting the uh, flood of absentee ballots in Philadelphia, and Biden is declared the winner. And then Trump tries to pressure the Republican state legislature there to send in a uh, a slate of electors for him and then falls to Congress to work that out. I mean, it just sounds like a a real nightmare scenario. And it's one of the things that keeps me up at night worried about uh, how we're going to get through this election in the middle of a pandemic. But it is it is a valid scenario. We're not you're not just the doomsday saying here. That's 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 within the realm of possibility. Right. That's why I uh, convened a group of uh, leaders in law, politics, media and tech to come up with some recommendations for how to best assure that uh, we'll have a fair election that people will accept as legitimate. And a number of things on that list are aimed at delays in votes and absentee ballots. And you know, part of it is what election administrators need to do in terms of being transparent about things. And a big part of it is the media, especially cable news media, understanding that there's a difference between uh, too early to call and uh, who's in the lead. And you need to kind of explain to uh, viewers that it's going to take time, especially in the context of uh, pandemic-related uh, changes in procedures and floods of absentee ballots, it's going to take a while to figure out who the winner is. People shouldn't expect that they're going to wake up on November 4th and know who the next president is if it happens to be close. I mean, again, it may not be close, but if it is close, uh, understanding and explaining what the procedure is and how things are going and, and knocking down misinformation, which could be coming from uh, Russia or other you know foreign adversaries to try to further undermine our uh, uh, the confidence in our process, I think, is really essential. So I think we need to plan for it now. We're about six months out from the election. Now's the time we need to be educating everyone about all of these issues. And uh, here in California, of course, you alluded to, we're used to that. We had, in 2018, we had uh, four congressional races that were, uh, it seemed like Republicans had won on election night. And then uh, when the votes were finally counted, those uh, seats had flipped to Democrats. Uh, you also write in your book that this an interesting scenario. You say, let's let's flip the script on the Trump won't concede if he loses fears. This is you writing. And imagine that Trump narrowly wins re-election in 2020 thanks to victories in Georgia, Florida, and Texas, if, each of which has restrictive voting laws. What, now, so what's your concern about what would happen there if, if the script is flipped and Trump uh, narrowly wins these uh, these states? Well, to the extent that there is convincing evidence that Trump won these states or won one of these states because there has been uh, an attempt to suppress the votes of uh, legitimate voters, uh, then the concern is not that it's the Trump supporters who don't accept the results as legitimate. It's the, uh, it's, it's the left, it's the Democrats that don't. And I think uh, it raises similar concerns about you know, how do you function in a society when uh, people don't believe that the election was fairly conducted? I mean, do you still have a democracy? And you know, what does it mean in terms of um, kind of street protests or uh, civil unrest, especially uh, we know that you know, the pandemic is causing all kinds of uh, economic dislocations, you know, people are losing their jobs. It's just, it creates a, a situation where, uh, for example, there might be street protests, which could then lead to repressive action by the government. And you get into a pattern where you're not talking about um, the way normal civil society in a democracy works. And so that that is uh, another one of those nightmare scenarios that I worry about. We'll have more of my conversation with Rick Hassan after this short break. And here's more of my conversation with Rick Hassan. All right, let's talk about something that, that's uh, that's on the table right now, and that's uh, mail-in voting. Right now, only five states, Oregon, Washington, Utah, Colorado, and Hawaii, uh, mail 
all of their registered voters a ballot. California has been slowly rolling this out over the last couple of years. Do we have the technology? And again, this is something we're talking about because of the pandemic. Do we have the technology and ability to do this in all 50 states by election day? Do we have the, and do we have the time to do that at this point? Well, do you mean move to a California style system or an all mail system? All mail system to, to deal with, uh, you know, the, the, the social distancing and physical distancing. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I would not advise that states that don't have all mail balloting to move to such a system uh, right now, because um, first of all, we don't know what's going to be with the postal service. We don't know what's going to be with mail in ballots. What our committee recommended is that there be a variety of methods, right? So we need to have uh, things in place for both in-person voting and for absentee balloting. I think both of those things need to be going. But I do think that because of the pandemic, we're going to see a huge uptick in the amount of absentee balloting. We're already seeing it in the later scheduled primaries. And some states are going to be better positioned than others to deal with this uh, surge of ballots. And, and let me explain why it's it's problematic. You might think it's easier because then you don't have to set up polling places. In some ways, uh, it, it's easier in that in that you don't have to find those workers. But you have to find other workers who are going to have to verify the absentee ballot envelopes. And states have different rules. Some states you have to have a witness or you have to have um, certain documentation like a voter identification card, uh, Xerox copy, right? So there are going to be all kinds of uh, processing times, uh, which not only causes delays, but um, it's expensive for jurisdictions and Congress has not come up with enough money to deal with all of those problems. States are financially strapped because of the pandemic. And so we're in a situation where uh, states are going to, more or less, depending on the state, prepare for the expected surge of absentee ballots. And um, whether they're prepared or not, those absentee ballots are going to come. And so I am concerned that there, that, you know, there are some states where it's not 60 or 70% like California of, of voters voting uh, by mail. It's something like 3 to 6%. And in those places, you know, we saw, for example, in Wisconsin, I think they got five times the number of absentee ballots. And and we know a number of those ballots were not counted because voters didn't get their ballots in time, couldn't send them back in time. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court rolled back somewhat a rule that a, the, a federal district court had come up with to extend the timing for the casting of these ballots. And, you know, so all of these things do... Um, raise logistical concerns. And so I think, you know, as I said, some parts of the country are in much better shape than others. I think California is in pretty good shape. And and in Los Angeles uh, County, where I live, um, I think they've now decided to mail a ballot to every eligible voter, which is something that uh, had been suggested after we had trouble, before COVID-19, after we had trouble in the primary with very long lines here as we moved to vote centers. So, uh, the more you can do to make it easier for people who are eligible to vote to legitimately cast a ballot, uh, the better off we're going to be in November. The president is not a fan of mail-in voting, even though he has done it himself. Um, he said, uh, you'd never, quote, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again if there was a, a massive mail-in voting. Other than political opposition, are there valid points to opposing mail-in ballots? I should say that the president's opposition to mail-in balloting is new. 
Uh, usually when he makes his unsubstantiated claims about voter fraud, he's talking about non-citizens voting, of which there is very, very little in the United States. And, and I give details about that claim in my book, Election Meltdown. Uh, so don't take my word for it. Go and read it and check out the footnotes. Um, uh, he also made claims about people voting uh, who lacked ID, voting in the name of others, thousands of people uh voting fraudulently, uh, again, not backed by the evidence. And now he's making claims against mail-in balloting, uh, which is quite odd. Uh, as you mentioned, not only does he regularly use uh, mail-in balloting for his own votes, uh, Republicans uh, traditionally in California have used mail-in balloting as a way to lock in their voters and get them to cast their votes. It's a key part of strategy in other states, including Florida and Ohio. Uh, the, the the best evidence shows that there is not good, uh, strong evidence that the uh, use of mail-in balloting helps Democrats. What I think has happened is that in the past decade or so, I think maybe from the beginning of uh, the Obama uh, campaign for president, uh, Democrats have moved towards encouraging more early voting, both in-person and absentee voting. It's become part of their strategy to get out the vote. So Democrats have caught up with Republicans in terms of using mail-in balloting. Uh, uh, how much fraud is there? We do know that election fraud in the United States is quite rare. Uh, I would point uh, your listeners to the News 21 database, which looked at all uh, prosecutions of election crimes in a 12-year period from 2000 to 2012. We know that absentee ballot-related uh, crimes made up about a quarter of the crimes that were reported, uh, that were prosecuted. Uh, but the total number was quite low. It was 491 cases uh, during a period when billions of ballots were cast. And many of those cases didn't involve anything that would have affected election outcomes. They were things like one person illegally requesting that absentee ballot uh, forms be sent to another person. Uh, uh, so um, uh, absentee ballot fraud does happen. It's quite rare. In the five states that use all-mail balloting, uh, which includes some heavily Republican states like Utah, the amount of election crime related to uh, absentee ballot tampering uh, and the amount of election crime generally is extremely low. So I think it's a very safe way to vote. And of course now, ordinarily we... We make the calculation that the convenience of people being able to vote by mail uh, outweighs the small risk of fraud. And now the calculation is different because now it's not only about the uh, convenience of absentee voting, it's about the safety of it and people who might be afraid or unable to come out in public should the pandemic uh, still be raging uh, in November. Yes. And, and, and if there's one thing that I hope the listeners take away from this podcast is that, uh, as the professor says, uh, when when the president tweets out that 100 percent mail in voting, which is ripe for fraud, is is inaccurate, there is very 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 little true voter fraud out there. Um, let's let's talk about the practice known as ballot harvesting. It's become colloquially known as that, and some states like California, it's illegal, it's now legal for campaigns to send out people to to collect, as you write, the ballots of stranger uh, ballots of strangers. And as you write in the book, on one hand, allowing uh, campaigns to collect ballots helps the elderly and disabled voters, as well as those in remote rural areas. On the other hand, you write, this could be, this could allow, quote, unscrupulous people to collect blank absentee ballots or steal them from mailboxes and fill them in. We have not seen reports of these types of problems yet in California, but they could arise in this future. For this reason, ballot harvesting should be limited to the collection of ballots uh, from those who are faced difficult difficulties turning them in. How should we change the system of, of ballot harvesting? How, how can we refine the, it to include some of your suggestions there? Well, uh, so I, th I think for first, it's important to underline that 
California that, uh, although it recently moved towards allowing the unlimited community collection of absentee ballots, has not seen uh, any uh, prosecuted crimes of, of anyone tampering with ballots yet. Uh, but but it provides a, a, um, a basis for suspicion. Uh, we saw uh, Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House, claiming that the vote shifts, which you mentioned earlier uh, in those congressional races in uh, Southern California, were bizarre, he called it. Um, I do think that it provides— But wasn't that kind of more, more basis of his ignorance of the system than anything else, right? Yeah, but I do think that when this—we saw in North Carolina in the 2018 election uh, where the, in the 9th Congressional District where there was ballot tampering, it was illegal to uh, collect— uh, uh, absentee ballots from others. So ballot harvesting illegal in North Carolina, but it happened anyway because people were not, uh, the federal government did not go ahead and prosecute despite uh, earlier evidence that there were problems. But it provides a kind of a fence around the uh, ability to manipulate absentee ballots if you can't have unlimited collection. And so I, I think I've now coalesced around the, um, System used in Colorado. Colorado uses all mail uh, balloting, and they uh, allow you to collect up to ten ballots from a stranger. Uh, so I think that's probably a good start. I, I would uh, suggest the California move to an approach like that. I think we might want to make exceptions uh, to allow collection uh, for places uh, where there is not regular mail service, or allow collection among populations that might have difficulty getting to a mailbox or getting those ballots in. Uh, so, uh, and, and I, I think we need to make sure that these laws are not being uh, passed in, in a way to try to disenfranchise minority voters, as was found by the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit involving an Arizona anti-ballot harvesting law. So I think we could try and strike a balance to make sure that people are not disenfranchised, but not provide an avenue by which um, you can have the, these ballots floating out there uh, by third-party groups. Uh, I, I, I worry, among other things, that unscrupulous people could come in and try and collect these ballots in uh, a neighborhood and uh, expect those voters are going to vote in a certain way and then just throw those ballots away. And so I think that's something that we do need to worry about. Uh, but let's talk about voter ID. 35 states right now require some form of identification. Democrats typically oppose these laws, saying they suppress turnout. Uh, you've written that uh, proving voter ID laws uh, suppressed turnout remains difficult and the effects of these laws are still difficult to measure what what about photo id what why couldn't we go to a system where uh the state would fund and provide for some sort of id not a driver's license because not everybody drives etc cetera, etc cetera. what's the what's the downside of doing that well i actually in, in a book i wrote in 2012 called the voting wars i suggested we have a national voter id all funded by the federal government all proactively provided by the federal government and i like to say it's a proposal that um, has united Democrats and Republicans because he united them against it. Uh, <laughs> Republicans don't like the aspect of it that is a universal, you know, every every person who's eligible to vote gets this voter ID card and is automatically registered to vote for life. And, and Democrats don't like the idea of registration and you know, the requirement of the card. And I would also let people use biometric information if they don't want to carry the card, for example, their thumbprint to verify their identity. Right, so there are things that we could do. Uh, the problem is the way that voter ID laws are actually implemented in the states. They usually have a limited number of types of IDs that are available. Uh, you know, uh, student uh, uh, ID cards are often not allowed and gun permits are allowed in Texas, for example. And uh, the way these laws are actually implemented on the ground, uh, lots of people who think they're, they don't have the right ID actually do. There's a lot of confusion around the plans. Because we have this decentralized system where um, 
the rules are not clear and uh, you have a lot of discretion on the part of individual uh, poll workers. Uh, it's just a system where people end up becoming disenfranchised by it or have to jump through hoops when these laws are not serving really much of a valid purpose, right? If the purpose is to prevent you from going to the polling place, claiming you're someone else and voting the ballot, that kind of fraud just doesn't happen. And it really is extremely rare. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's hard to find any instances of any organized effort to try to, to steal an election in this way. So I do think that um, the state voter ID laws are mistaken. The reason I would favor it on the federal level is because uh, we have this hodgepodge of voter registration laws and all kinds of people end up getting disenfranchised when they're um, no longer registered to vote because either they haven't voted or they've moved or something like that. If the federal government had a national database and kept track of your voter registration information, you'd always be registered somewhere and it'd be easy. You know, you'd have one number that would, uh, a voter registration number that would go with you your whole life. Um, it would be a different kind of system. And I think it would be a much more rational system, national universal voter registration with a national voter ID card. Um, what are your concerns about voter suppression in cities with significant black populations like Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Detroit that are in key battleground states? Uh, and one way you write in the, uh, is that uh, if the Russians or other foreign governments really wanted to use hacking to disrupt an American presidential election, the most direct and dangerous way would be to bring down the electrical grid on election day in a swing state, democratic city such as Milwaukee or Detroit. There's good reason to believe they already have the capability to do so. What are your concerns about this? Yeah, this was a, one of the nightmare scenarios that I spell out in Election Meltdown. I think that uh, it, it's a real concern because um, we think of election infrastructure as voting machines and polling places, but in fact, it takes a lot more in terms of our general infrastructure to run an election, including uh, that the uh, electricity is working so that people can you know drive their cars, uh, you know get through st uh, stop stoplights, and you know the the get on an elevator or whatever to be able to get to a polling place. And uh, so I am worried. I, I would say that that kind of activity should be treated as a, an act of war against the United States, but you don't have a president right now who is warning the Russians against interference uh, in the election or, or others. In fact, he seems to be inviting interference. And so I am very concerned about uh, uh, that on election day. And, and I would say that these concerns are heightened by the pandemic because within the pandemic, um, there's lots of room for more disinformation. People are already skittish about um, you know, going out in public. People are already, uh, you know, primed to um, uh, just cocoon themselves and and not engage in political life. And you know, there's all kinds of mischief that could happen related to the um, election, including taking down the grid. That could uh, be a real problem. In this way, absent, increased absentee balloting can help because, uh, you know, an attack on the electrical grid is not going to affect whether ballots that were stuck in the mail are going to be able to be counted. So uh, that's one step that can be taken to try to deal with this uh, in the short term. Let's let's talk about uh, one thing I want to run by you was uh, a question or a concern, I should say, I got the other day from a Democratic operative. He was concerned that in several of the battleground states, uh, among them Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, there are um, these are states with large colleges. Uh, they have many out-of-state students, and if classes remain in uh, online mode in the fall, a lot of, and a lot of those students don't return to classes, those out-of-state students, there could be a significant decrease in Democratic turnout. This person was concerned, and you know, let's remind the listeners that. that uh, when you lose uh, by 80,000 votes across four states, including these three, every little vote counts. 
Uh, so is that a valid concern or is that just a really, are we talking about something way, way at the margins here? Well, it's not something I thought about before, but it does seem to make sense to have this concern because, uh, you know, of all the populations that are affected by the pandemic in terms of where people are living, I think students are the ones that have moved the most. Many students have gone back to their parents' homes because that's where it is, uh, safe to be at the time. And, um, if, Someone, for example, is a student in uh, Pennsylvania uh, li living with parents in California. Is that student going to request an absentee ballot? Are the students even going to be eligible to get an absentee ballot? If, for example, you were a freshman and you were planning on starting at the University of Pennsylvania in the fall. So I do think that's something to be concerned about. And I think that to the extent that Democrats are counting on the student vote, uh, dislocations in the fall could affect uh, uh, whether or not those people vote and where they vote. Uh, one more I want to ask you is um, typically the people who are most likely to turn out traditionally have been uh, wealthy, older and white. Those are people who are more likely to vote Republican, which <laughs> explains in part why Republicans are a little bit less in incentive to make voting easier for others. Uh, but do you think coronavirus will change the face of the electorate um, since older Americans are more susceptible to to? Being uh, to to getting and and being hurt more by the uh, by see by COVID nineteen, and we should add that in twenty sixteen, President Trump won voters over the age of sixty five by seven points. So this is this is a key demographic for him. But overall, do you th how do you think that the um, the pandemic and what we're we're going through right now will change the face of the electorate? Well, I, that's probably a little bit outside of my area of expertise. Uh, I think it's very hard to know how the pandemic is going to affect things. We don't know what things are going to look like in November. Um, uh, one of the things we saw in Wisconsin, for example, uh, which uh, ran a uh, primary in the middle of the pandemic, and um, uh, it, it was when you know the the contest between Biden and Sanders was was uh, pretty much at its end. Uh, and so you might think the turnout would be down. In fact, turnout was way up, especially among Democrats who thought that uh, the Republican legislature's refusal to move the election was, you know, an attempt to to kind of put put Democrats in danger or force them uh, from not voting. And so there was kind of a backlash, and uh, turnout was up among Democrats, especially by mail. Um, it's really hard to know what the politics of the situation are going to be. You know, I've heard a lot of people say nothing's going to stop me from voting. And, you know, people did line up and, and voted in Milwaukee, even though 175 out of 180 polling stations were closed. Uh, people did uh, turn out to vote. And uh, the Democratic-backed candidate for the state Supreme Court there ended up winning a pretty decisive uh, race there, not only in the um, traditionally Democratic strongholds of places like Milwaukee and Madison, uh, but also in more rural areas. So I think anybody who knows how the pandemic is going to affect turnout, um, uh, that person knows more than I do, because I think it's re just really hard to know at this point. Professor, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. We appreciate it. Thanks Thanks for scaring us, too. You're scaring <laughs> the crap out of us while these nightmare well, scenarios. Well, now's the time to be preparing, and, and I'd uh, advise you to, uh, if, uh, if you Google fair elections in a crisis, uh, you'll find uh, our 14 recommendations of our committee uh, of what to do to try to make things better. And uh, more recommendations in my book, Election Meltdown. Yes. And uh, the Chronicle, or my colleague John Wildermuth wrote about your uh, study the other day. You can find that on sfchronicle.com. And again, the book, Election Meltdown. Thank you so much for your time. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. And I hope that you and your family are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Professor Hassan for joining us today. 
talk about his new book, Election Meltdown. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, no matter what your election day nightmare is, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.